Broadcasting live from a room full of cursed children's toys, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Garrett Strother. And I'm one of your other hosts, Bill, 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 Seamus Connolly. (laughs) How long have you been holding on to that one? Just came up with it a second ago, thought I'd give it a shot. (laughs) That is so good. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, we are doing the first two Conjuring films for our main segment today in preparation for The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, or maybe just The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. I think they're dropping the numbers. Oh, that's weird. I hate that title, and I have not been quiet about my dislike for that title. It's getting worse. Well, I think it'll probably be more justified in movie So, we'll see, but we'll be talking about that next week, because this week, we're talking about those first two, would you call them modern horror classics, Seamus? Maybe. They're pretty, I think they might have been in that era of, like, modern horror renaissance a little bit, back back when that first one came out. But first, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about some real life, real life horror in our news segment. (laughs) Oh, God, yes. Take it away, Garrett. First up. Pretty big news. Amazon, the the media titan, shipping titan, you guys know what Amazon is, <laughs> has acquired MGM Studios, which is just the, the entire way they're going about this is really unnerving to me of like, the, I think the official Amazon press release is something along the lines of MGM has such a great wealth of intellectual property and Amazon is very excited to bring those properties into the 21st century. So get ready for a 2001 reboot folks. And, oh God. Or uh, another with the wind. It's just cut. Oh wait, they made, they made, they wrote a book called Scarlet. So this isn't really a very good joke. I was going to say <laughs> a Cruella style, like gone with the wind prequel. <laughs> they already did that. I was going to say another RoboCop reboot, just as disappointing as the other one. Uh, I think more Adams Family until we're all dead. Is that MGM, I think? Oh, probably. I don't I mean, I like the Adams The Adams Family, I have no problem with them being a, a heavy hitter franchise. Seamus, you know about my affinity for the Adams Family, but. Of course. It's just the whole attitude of like. Look at all this great IP that we're gonna be able to 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 give that Amazon polish, and it's like like they're saving it. Yeah, I, it, just, I it, hate it. In reality, it's just like they're just publicly pillaging all of our beloved IPs. Like I I was just looking at a list stuff like oh you know they're gonna go hard on James Bond, you know? They're going to turn that into, oh. like, a Jack Ryan series starring, you know, somebody weirdly not fit for the role, or... That's the thing that I was going to bring up, is Bond is in a weird space where the Broccoli's still own the rights. Oh, really? Even though MG... Like, it's one of those, like, MGM owns the owns the rights to, like, making Bond films or something, but the Broccoli's still own the character or something like it's a whole complicated thing that we might end up doing for a pop culture reference at some point when i do enough research to understand it (laughs) but as it stands now bond is in a weird gray area i mean no time to die is still coming out 
they're probably going to keep making Bond movies just the way they always have. But, yeah, I don't know if Amazon's going to go like, okay, it's time for the Money Penny Amazon Prime series. <laughs> I was going to say it's the 008 series or something like that. Young M, maybe? I, I would actually oh, maybe yeah, watch that. It's totally Young M. Yeah. Like, you get... I don't even know who you get to play young Judy Dench, like Alice Eve or somebody. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ugh. She was originally Gross. a double O agent or something that graduated oh, to... Of... Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Uh, it writes itself except for the fact <laughs> that it's terrible. <laughs> That's exactly why they're going to make it, dude. I mean, you saw what happened with Spectre where they were like, oh, what if we cinematic universe bond? Yeah. Yeah. Literally, like, such a anthology based franchise that they thought they could pull that with it's ugh. i mean skyfall i give a pass for essentially trying to origin story james bond just because it's a movie yeah. that rocks but you know there was a lot of interesting stuff with his like scottish origins too that were kind of more in line with how the original character was supposed to be or like some of the details about his upbringing that were bleeding through that were actually straight up based on what he said in the like way older films. I, I thought that was interesting, but oh yeah, like I like Skyfall. This is Sky- not a Skyfall is great. Skyfall. So yeah, uh, MGM. It's a weird thing. It's a sad thing, and we'll talk about it more during our pop culture reference. This is on the heels, of course, of both Jeff Bezos's divorce and Jeff Bezos stepping down more recently from being CEO of Amazon. Yeah, I don't really know what that means for a deal like this, besides the fact that whoever is in charge now is just going to be trying to make that Bezos money and, like, triple it. So I can only imagine they're going to be churning out just a river of these remakes and reboots. The only good thing about this is the fact that I know Disney was interested in buying MGM. And I would rather, I mean, I would rather more independent stuff stay independent, but... I would rather somebody own MGM that's not Disney just for the sake of, you know... Monopolization, maybe? Like, the illusion of, you know, variety. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. And plus, you know, Amazon Studios has made some really solid stuff over the last few years. Like, Oscar-y stuff, I think, right? I mean... Big Sick yeah. and uh, Hidden Figures, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, was Manchester by the Sea Amazon Studios? That seems right. I think that's right. Yeah, like, Amazon makes good content. It's just, like... It's weird to have it be this... It's it's growing as a conglomerate, and that's never usually a great thing. And also, so much of Amazon's good content... I mean, obviously, there are the exceptions of, like, Jack Ryan. But most of Amazon's content is original stuff. Like, new IPs. You know? Yeah, that is true. I feel like... I guess The Boys was based on a comic book, but... That's true. That's true. I do... Yeah. Uh, but but speaking of of running beloved comic franchises into the ground with stuff nobody asked for, Todd Phillips is signed on to co-write a sequel to Joker, a thing he said he would never do. Uh, uh, a collective sigh of uh, exhaustion reading this. It's just, if you didn't think they could fit, you know, too many, like, eye-rolling references in the first one, how are they, it's a, se- a sequel to that? What are they even going to do? Seamus. 
the Joker is my favorite independent film. <laughs> oh, you little... And it's just snobs like you <laughs> that don't want to see the little guy succeed, just like in my favorite independent film, The Joker. <laughs> you know, you actually have to have a really high intellect to understand The Joker, and it shows that you don't, so... Oh, man. We're gonna go back to those memes for a long time, folks. That and more paranoia about Joker-style terrorism, probably, is only what uh, I can imagine. Just like the good old days, pre-COVID, you remember? <laughs> yeah, that's what we're coming uh, back to. It's dark. Oh, uh, who... Do you think there's gonna be, like, some kind of weird COVID metaphor going on oh, in the new Joker? hell yeah. Are you kidding me? I didn't even think of that until you just said it, but that makes more than complete sense. If Todd, if Todd Joker. Phillips just signed to co-write it, there it's it's gonna be about society 2.0, brother. It's <laughs> it's it's gonna go off. Oh man, I can't believe we all just lived a year under the influence of Joker gas and we all have to stay inside. <laughs> oh, they're gonna do a thing about masks and Joker masks and that oh, whole thing. No. You already know, dude. <laughs> oh no. But but Seamus, nobody even cared who I was until I. <laughs> Uh, you know, if they go for that, I'm in. I'm 100% on board for that joke alone, if they go Bane with it. I mean, Joker-style Bane is way more interesting to me than Joker-style Joker, honestly. Like, putting him in a weird 70s grimy New York. Yeah, man. I could, I could vibe with that. It's something. I feel like with the Robert Pattinson Batman... Pulling from the long Halloween concept with, like, a lot of these villains going to be coming into play for, like, their first-time iteration in that universe. I think this Joker is going to try to do something similar of taking more Batman villains and doing and pulling the, the Todd Phillips on them and, like, making them gritty and, like, socially blank. You know, it's that's going to be the whole thing. They're just going to tweak all these villains to fit with the Joker aesthetic and theme. I was going to say, I, I, I feel like they wouldn't want to double dip with what Pattinson's doing. I would almost be interested to see what Phillips would do with a penguin, but, like, I, I just I, just don't, I don't know what else they could want. do, really, is the thing. Like, are they going to have, are they going to have, uh, see, I don't even remember Joaquin Phoenix's name in that. If they're going to have the Joker be on the other side of, like, teenage Bruce Wayne on a fence, like, we've seen it. We've done that. <laughs> Are they gonna like make it a Batman movie where Batman is doing things? Probably not. There's, there's just very little in my mind that they could do from where they left off on the last one. I guess it's the the secret is is because the first one isn't well written. Oh no! Take that, Todd Phillips. Oh, oh no! They're coming for me. <laughs> you're getting Joker mob. You're getting canceled, brother, by the the Joker gang. <sighs> That's what it's going to be. It's going to be the Joker gang, and then that's going to bleed into, like, internet trolls during the promotion of this movie, and it's going to be See, like, we're the Joker gang, right, guys? Let's go all support Todd Phillips. They would never do it, because it's a studio movie that wants to make money. Yeah, but, I guess. honestly, the most interesting way they could take that is if you want if the movie is going to still pretend that it thinks the Joker is the bad guy, which it the first one doesn't. Um, then they could say some really interesting things about, like, if what if you had a Joker movie not about uh, 
I, I can't remember his name either. If you didn't have the Joker in your movie, if it's just about these these young, radicalized Joker followers, you could say a lot of really interesting things about demagoguery, cult of personality, um, you know, relevant messages about the impressionability of young male people. Damn, that's honestly a great take on that, especially if they were going to maybe... I don't remember the exact year in the first one, but if they're going to do a little time jump, maybe to like uh, eighty early 80s in Gotham, young punk scene is like turning into young Joker gang scene, turning into destroying Gotham, while maybe the Joker, whose name we can't remember, is sitting in Arkham for a while. Fleck. 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 His name is Fleck. Arthur Fleck. The there name. it is. Arthur. Arthur, yeah. Arthur Fleck. Damn. How, did you just pull that out, or did you look that up? No, I just, in my, it popped into my brain. <laughs> God, I just, I, I was trying so hard to remember his name, and I just kept thinking of the, you wouldn't get it delivery, where he's smoking his cigarette at the end. Or is that at the beginning? I don't even remember. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the Joker of not liking the Joker, Seamus. <laughs> Ooh, I'm edgy. That's I'm gonna... edgy because I don't like the Joker. <laughs> we don't live in a society. Oh my god, you've cracked the code. That's the only way to deflate these Joker people is <laughs> denying society. <laughs> uh, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about another strange adaptation of a classic character, which actually we absolutely pegged. sniped, dude. I don't... Which one of Which one of us actually was it? I think it was... I said it first, but you were literally about to say it, I believe, oh. all the way back in January when they announced this project, the new Wonka origin film directed by Paddington director Paul King. You and I both were like, oh, here's who would be good for it and who we'd like to see and what would be an interesting choice, but it's probably going to be <laughs> Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> Oh God, we. I'm not. I'm not knocking Timothy Chalamet. I like Timothy Chalamet. I love Timothy but... Chalamet, but it it was exact. Like we have this studio kind of casting down at this point. That was such a snipe. I I can see him, you know, with the curly hair, with the with the top hat. I can see that going down. But yeah, I don't know. He does definitely remind me more visually with just like the pointier nose and the paler skin of like the. Johnny Depp, Willy Wonka, but I doubt they're going to be trying to go that angle. No, I think uh, what I'm picturing is like, he's young, sexy, poor Willy, and everybody calls him Willy. <laughs> oh, yeah? And, okay, we're having a trailer, and it's like, you know that Disney color grading where it, like, is technically a color, but everything still seems washed out? Oh, 100%, yeah. It's going to be that it's going to be that style of color grading of, like, and there's going to be, like, little English kids being like, go away, street trash, ooh. <laughs> and, and then he's, like, looking, like, Charlie style, he's, like, looking in the window of a, this is the trailer, by the way. Yeah, yeah, and, and just in the real quick, the, the entire time, a slowed down rendition of the Candyman can is, is playing under all of this. No. Brother, it's pure imagination on the piano. Oh, there slowly. it is. There it my, is. <laughs> that was my punchline, Shane. No, I'm sorry. Oh, I stepped on the punchline. I was thinking, I was thinking Candyman can because 
in my imagination, he is like the low down street candy vendor for a while. He's the candy man. Oh, sure. No, but it goes because it starts with it starts with like the little kids over, and then it goes bum bum <laughs> bum, and then like another line of dialogue and another thing, and then like bum bum <laughs> bum, and it just and then and then like when we actually get into it, you you actually get into the melody. And then at the end, you see the silhouette of, or maybe it's either the silhouette of the cane in the top hat or him put, about to put the top hat on his head. Oh, and then, yeah. Poof, Wonka. It's <laughs> so, I'm going to, whenever this trailer comes out, I'm going to cut this bit of audio out and put it over the trailer just so you can be so right. It's going to be it's going to be shot for shot. I imagine they're going to throw in quick cuts of like a woman he's falling in love with who we know is going to either die or leave him by the end. She's uh, going to drown in a river of chocolate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to be like him meeting like an even poorer, more low-down Oompa Loompa somewhere and he's like, "Come with me." And we'll see, you know, we're... <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no. You get it. You get everything that's going to happen here. Oh, Slugworth is going to be in this movie. Oh, yes. He's going to be, like, the big villain. Young Grandpa Joe. Young Grandpa Joe is going to be in this for sure. You think we're getting Young Grandpa Joe? I think so. It's going to be, like, um, Mark Wahlberg or something stupid like that. It's going to be Grandpa Young Grandpa Joe. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the stupidest He's cast. He's keeping his uncharted of. mustache. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. Yeah, it's gonna be something like that. That's gonna be an element. It's gonna respark the Grandpa Joe hate community. <laughs> it's it's gonna be weird. Where do you fall on on Grandpa Joe, Seamus? He he might as well be a war criminal, Garrett. I think that he's is <laughs> absolute human garbage, and he knows what he did. He knows what he does. Oh, it's about the power of hope, Seamus. <laughs> It's about the power of his working legs, walking his ass to work to buy cabbage soup for his starving family. Uh, absolutely fantastic. I cannot wait to talk about more Willy Wonka with you. Yeah, it's only going to get weirder. We've got some more casting news, though, as Merle Dandridge is going to reprise her role of Marlene from the video game The Last of Us in the upcoming HBO series, The Last of Us. That's fantastic. You know, I love to see the holdovers from the actual game coming through with how much attention they spent on, like, facial motion capture and, like, bringing a lot of the people that were working on this game into the game itself. So, you know, it's it's great to see her cross the line into the live action. Uh, also, Merle Dandridge, just big shout-out in general. She's having a great couple years here between uh the last of us games this show uh i believe she is the voice for alex in the half-life franchise and is she really i believe so and they just put out the first canon half-life based entirely around her character uh i think this year last year the vr one right yeah the vr one and I, they're kind of teasing that that's going to maybe go to PlayStation soon or maybe that they're going to continue Half-Life. So she's she's doing grand right now. But yeah, this is exciting, uh, despite our Valve tangent. <laughs> yes. Good for her. I like seeing these voice actors transition into their live-action roles because if they're right for the part, they're right for the part, you know? 
Absolutely. Mar- Marlene is such a intense and well done role in those games. I'm just I'm just really happy to see that. I'm praying that that intensity definitely translates. I'm not sure why it wouldn't. So I mean, it's good news. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. One last bit of casting news: Aaron Taylor Johnson is set to star in a Craven the Hunter spinoff film in the Sony verse, the Venom verse, set to debut January 2023. So we've got three of our three of our Sinister Six, Seamus. Yes, yes, we do. Uh, I can only imagine they're gonna tease this at the end of Let There Be Carnage. Uh, or Morbius, or which Morbius technically be coming out before that. True, true. I I was just gonna ask: Does this officially cut any chance that the Sony verse and the MCU will leak into each other? Because that man is Quicksilver. Oh yeah, I mean like Tom Holland's definitely still gonna show up in the Venom movies. You think so? I I think so. I mean, I still like our theory that from whatever week we talked about this, that it's this is the Amazing Spider-Man universe. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. that would just be amazing. That would be the best case scenario. Because now I'm also no. remembering that Tombs was in that Morbius trailer. Yes, So correct. there so is still connective up. tissue, but it's like so locked I mean, off to the main main characters, maybe? You could also have it where like Vulture is just the same in both realities, and it doesn't matter. But I was going to say, we actually seem to have four of our Sinister Six, because if Vulture's in Morbius, then we've oh, got right. Venom. Oh, wait, no, and you've got Carnage, too. So you've got Venom, Carnage, Morbius, Vulture, and Craven. You're only missing one. You only need that Goblin. Or the, no, it's the Doc Ock? It could be anybody. I guess and it could like, be anybody. Sinister Six, it doesn't matter. It's a mix and match. My first instinct with this casting was that Aaron Taylor Johnson was too young, but then I remembered, like, him with his big beard and tenet, and I was like, well, yeah, I think right. Fun. And he's jacked or whatever. Yeah, I think, I think it'll be interesting to say the least. I I like him. I want to see him in more. I feel like he always gets, uh, you know, like Kick Ass was great. I loved him in Kick Ass, and I wish he was around for more than a movie in the MCU. But yeah, this is his, this is his new shot. Villains are in, man. Heroes are nothing these days. But let's flip over to Marvel for a second. Wait, no, this is Marvel still. You know what I mean. Let's flip over to the MCU. There we go. And talk about that new Eternals trailer. Uh, This new Eternals trailer is wild, dude. I know very little about the Eternals since they've been announced as going to be part of the MCU. But this trailer has me incredibly excited. We get to see the whole cast in their... Super cool armor, their Eternals outfits. There's way more of them than I had even realized until I saw that big team-up shot of them, of all of them standing together. In my head, there was like six of them, and there is definitely more than that. (laughs) Yeah, dude. I Yeah, exactly. Also, I didn't realize that Rob Stark and Jon Snow were in this movie. Yeah, right? I didn't realize that either. I knew Rob Stark was in it, but... You know, we're going to get some fun action with them, I'm sure. This this trailer was like them emerging into, like, pre-civilization Earth from a giant triangle spaceship and, like, building, I don't know, Atlantis. Like, they're, they're, they're doing some pretty futuristic stuff for these humans here. Oh, man, can't wait for Marvel to play into the ancient aliens crowd. Oh, gotta love that. Oh, man. 
definitely uh, a big thing that I've been seeing a lot of online from this trailer is like, well, they're so powerful. Where were they during this? If they know about the Avengers, why didn't they help during this? And I mean, that's the movie, so ex- though, right? Yeah, like they're so explicitly like we we don't help throughout history, really, except sometimes we do. Um, like clearly, that's the movie telling us, yeah. hey, we're gonna address the very thing that you're asking about. But that's literally the only thing I've been seeing about Eternals is like, ha- like a third is like, oh, this looks fun, and the other two thirds are like this is BS or like they're talking about usurping adventure stuff. I can only assume that little joke at the end of that trailer about, was that Rob Stark saying I'll oh, take yeah, over he for wants to lead the Avengers now. Yeah. yeah. And was that Wong at the end of the trailer? No, I don't think so. Wait, was it? Okay. Cause I was going to say, I watched it, did... it on my phone. So I didn't, I couldn't really tell. I don't think it was. I feel like I, I would have recognized him. Yeah. I don't think so. I, I was going to say though, it looks so much like, Doctor Strange magic, and yes. I love that. Like, I that's some of my favorite visual effects in the MCU is the Doctor Strange magic, and it's like that plus Iron Man suits. It it looks badass. It looks like it's gonna be super fun. Yeah, I'm excited to to see this. I I'm glad it didn't give me a ton of plot or anything. I'm 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 glad this trailer relied mostly on vibes. Oh, definitely. I I can only imagine that like the entire trailer of them like building up this city with the humans for what I can imagine is maybe the first time they've done that. It's going to end in like the city collapsing because humans are bad and then them being like, "Well, we'll never help again." And then we jump to <laughs> now times and they're like, "Oh no, Galactus is coming." <laughs> You think this is it? You think this is where we, we where we get to start teasing Galactus? I mean, if they weren't gonna show their heads for Thanos, they're just like well, they can handle it. It's fine. I know half of them disappeared. They'll get them back. It's fine. But Wait, they so gotta kill something bigger. You, you think the Eternals didn't get snapped? Is that what you're saying? You don't think they counted? Oh, interesting. Well, even in that case, there's like half of us disappeared. It's fine. Well, like this isn't that big of a deal. Like whatever. We're the Eternals. Like that's even more of a or reason for me. we all got snapped. Oh. Like the Ant-Man crew. <laughs> the odds were not in their favor and they just got dusted. Well, that's possible. I don't know. I, okay. I like the idea of them just being like, Galactus is the only thing we're caring about and that's how we're going to do it. That could be interesting. I mean, all... I'm just hoping, you know, I've got high hopes for this. I'm a big Chloe Zhao fan, as I've said countless oh, times on totally. the show. And so I'm really interested to see what her take on this is. And I love the idea of, like, a weird period adventure film. Because it takes a little bit of the... Like, I love adventure films, where you're, like, going to to uh, a new land and meeting a primitive culture and stuff. But, mm-hmm. like... A lot of times that feels really colonial and weird. Um, and this, yeah. the idea is a little bit like the fact that they're actually meeting like primitive humans. Right. It's like, yeah. oh, so we could do it and not feel like super bad about the fact that it's just like white colonialism. Yeah. You know, you switch it out for a, a multicultural, multi gender ragtag group of hyper intelligent super aliens and make it like kind of cavemen. It feels less weird. We've got one last trailer to talk about, which is Edgar Wright's upcoming horror film, Last Night in Soho, which is very different than I anticipated it being. Dude, me too. This this movie has been 
talked about for such a long time now. Like, it's been in production and pre-production, and it's been just, like, such an anticipated film that I found out I didn't know jack about after watching this trailer. And everything that I saw intrigued the hell out of me, really. It's 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 going to be freaky, obviously visually just gorgeous from what I've seen, all of the reliance on, like, the neon and the colored light that's going to be in there. It's very excited. I mean, I think I think Edgar Wright movies are usually very good looking. Obviously, oh, like absolutely, I'm a, big, I'm a big Scott Pilgrim fan. Obviously, Baby Driver is a great looking movie, and even his um, Cornetto stuff is good looking. Definitely, it just but, created visually, just in a very particularly well done way. This film, I feel like, I I don't know. It feels like I love Edgar Wright's movies, but this feels so much more of. Like, it feels like a grown-up movie, and I don't mean that in any kind of derogatory way towards Edgar Wright's other films. Mm. But this feels like, oh no, but this is like it, though. This is like, <laughs> like <laughs> this is like, I'm taking, and I and I know that some of that is coming from the kind of stigma there is behind, like, parody and comedy um, being paired with other genres, and the sincerity that baby driver has mm-hmm. also like because the cornettos and scott pilgrim are like parody films and baby driver is so sincere like on the other end of the spectrum is like so sincere that i think some people have trouble taking it seriously and again those are all films that i love i'm trying to like be clear i'm a big oh, yeah. right fan but this movie is like no it's adult time <laughs> like yeah. um it's gonna be weird and horror and the like the light I was I was stemming off of your comment about how it's shot, which is like the lighting feels like it has graduated to a different style than Wright usually shoots in. Like it looks like the whole movie's gonna be shot like the third act of Baby Driver. Because I mean Baby Driver's shot by Bill Pope, who's a huge DP. Like mm-hmm. he did, he did he invented the style of the matrix that's bill pope shot that movie yeah definitely and i mean like spider-man 2 and and lots of other really good films but like this movie looks so polished honestly there it it's i i know what you're talking about here man it's like almost more and this is kind of a dumb thing to say but like more studio feeling than yeah. what I'm used to. That I also was thinking that it might be more of just how the trailer was edited together like that. Like there were a couple shots, like the very opening with the curtain opening. Like I was like, oh, classic, boom, Edgar Wright, here we go. But then as we kind of got into the more montage part of the action of the trailer itself, I was like, this seems like it's pretty chopped up from what I'm anticipating. No doubt. Yeah. Because, you know, you've got the whole slowed down version of Petula Clark's downtown sung by Anya Taylor-Joy. Good for her. And, you know, the quick shots of iconography that, you know, it's like, oh, you know, um, there's the poster for a James Bond movie. I know James Bond Bond (laughs) movies. Oh, I know what Piccadilly Circus looks like, except now it's the sixties. Like, yeah, definitely. um, but yeah, I mean, let's talk about the content, I guess, which is what surprised me the most, that Anya Taylor-Joy and Thomason McKenzie, who I only know from Leave No Trace, but I know is in, like, other stuff, seem to be living, like, a 
split, a time split double life where Thomason McKenzie is living in the present, seemingly, and Anya Taylor-Joy, her alter ego, is living in the 60s, in this, like, glamorous, idealized 60s London. Yeah, there's a whole... It's like she looks into a mirror, and she's blonde, and, well, a different actor. So, like, it's it's a completely different person. It's not just, like, a... It's not, like, a complete alter ego. It's, like, seemingly a completely different person. And there's a lot of interesting uh, snippets we see her trying to, like, become more like this other person in the past, in her present, and... The idea that maybe switching places is what that other person maybe wants all along. They're trying to like trap them or take their life or Well there there's lots of there's lots of hands coming through stuff in this oh, trailer. Yeah, that was freaky as hell. Through the floor, through the windows, they almost look like the buff grey vampire arms from I Am Legend. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what like clearly there is some supernatural force that's not time travel in this film i mean like it could be connected to time travel but like there's the there's the you know weirdness of the time travel split whatever but then there's also some kind of clearly like more conventional ghosty style villain thing in this too i i unless i'm mistaken i think there's a line in the trailer that's like do you believe in ghosts (laughs) or something pretty straight out but I doubt it's going to be something that simple. It feels more like Matt Smith is going to be a a devil type, a demon type that's kind of orchestrating everything uh, to, you know, hurt whoever this woman is. Well, I think I'm probably going to go from this point full trailer embargo here on out. I think I'm I think I'm curious enough and I trust Edgar Wright enough that I'm like, I'm going to see this movie opening weekend probably. So I'm just going to I think I'm going to wait it out. That's I, I might be right there with you, dude. I, I avoided so much even before this trailer from like the content of what this movie was gonna be. I'm thoroughly titillated. I'm I'm gonna be seeing this movie regardless. I don't need to know more. You and I'll probably be there together Thursday night, so Yeah, hell yeah. Alright. Um th- this has been a a nice uh, packed news segment. Should we move on to the conjuring and the conjuring two? Let's do it. This week's main segment, we are going to be talking about The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2. Uh, as a lead up for our next week's episode for the release of The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. And Seamus, I think probably what's going to be easiest for us, because they are such similar films, is do non-spoilers for kind of both of them together at the top and then do spoilers for both of them together. Yeah, that's that's fine with me. They, Like you said, they are such similar films you know i i gen i genuinely enjoy them both i think that you know there was an era of super cheap lame non-scary horror movies and that first conjuring was one of the ones i remember kind of cutting through that uh just like endless list of really bad paranormal activity sequels and saw sequels and all of that it was just it was something that actually kind of felt like a real horror movie to me and rewatching them both, I, I kind of feel that again. Like, they definitely feel, in essence, like what horror should be. I mean, the first one in particular is so 
70s horror. Oh, yeah. It might as well be the Amityville horror, almost, which they, they get into in the sequel, but... And, of course, I mean, the Warrens famous, like, are the ones who right. made the Amityville horror famous, pretty mm-hmm. much. And, I mean, just the, like, the zooms and the long lenses and the pacing and the freeze frames and the... Just, oh, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. This is where I think James Wan shines as a director because these movies are so much more than like little thrill ride horror movies like the point of this and this is ironic that we keep comparing it to the saw franchise is like oh bad horror because of course james (laughs) one directed the first saw movie granted those first i'm gonna go ahead and say first three saw movies are genuinely very good but then there's like 10 of them so i can't i can't really can't do it but the idea behind most, I feel like, contemporary horror films, of especially, like, franchise horror films, is, like, they are cheap, scary vehicles for you to, like, you know, it's for teenagers to go to and, and cuddle up and be spooked. And, yeah. And there are obviously great horror films being made. You look at the works of Jordan Peele, other examples that I literally cannot think of right now because I'm a fake fan. You got, but you know, you, you know what I mean. Yeah, your hereditaries, your yeah, I, I guess, mean, even Quiet Place. Yeah, the Quiet Place, did, sure. You know? But I think this these films are operating under a very different set of like goals than a film like a Saw film, where the goal is not just to like make you grossed out or scare you for two hours straight, because well, it's first chasing a very different kind of scare, because the first Conjuring is only rated R because of how scary it is. That they shot it anticipating a PG-13 rating. They intentionally tried for a PG-13 rating, and the MPAA came back with an R. And they were like, okay, what do we need to cut? We don't have any cussing, we don't have any gore. And they were like, no, it's literally just too scary. And that is so inventive, so cool to me. And Juan is also chasing a kind of, and we'll talk about this more in spoilers, the idea of putting the Warrens as the center point of this franchise. Characters who you know are not going to get hurt because they're real people that you know didn't die horrific deaths. Right. The fact that they are the center of this means that these films are forced to tackle a more human angle of, like, character-driven storytelling of compassion and i think that like the conjuring 2 specifically while being probably the lesser of these two films is the one that handles that better and knows what to do more with the warrens because the first one runs into the problem of like well the audience knows that these people can't get hurt so we kind of keep them out of the movie for a while yeah man i know i know what you mean it's it's very um it's back to that classic horror formula where you are kind of getting this POV from the Warrens as seeming, you know, kind of the main characters of these movies, but then you get these defenseless and just absolutely afflicted groups that are mostly women and children, and you're like, that's where your concerns are lying, exactly the same as the Warrens on screen. You're like, them I can kind of not have to worry about too much, but these are the people that are being terrorized that are like, kind of not being able to be helped by the Warrens as much as they want to. Yeah, definitely, that they keep this angle focused on the characters that are being plagued by these infestations of of supernatural activity, and 
again, in The Conjuring 2, I think shows it better, and again, we'll talk about it in the spoilers, that the Warrens are truly there to help people and invested in helping people, and that they take great care to show the Warrens, not just helping them with, like, supernatural stuff, but, like, they know that people are having trouble not only focus like, they're only focusing on this terrible event that's happening to them. So you always see the Warrens, like, doing laundry, fixing whatever needs to be fixed around the house, just getting stuff done that needs to be done. Yeah, family, to help. family household things that they're, like, as, you know, maybe not as true to life as the real Warrens may have been, like you said, are just, like, all about helping the other people over anything else. And, and that's the other thing about these films. It, that's a tricky thing for me. I think these are great films. And whoever had the idea, I don't know if it was James Wan, I don't know if it was some studio guy, I don't know if it was some screenwriter, but whoever was like, what if we do a series based on the Warrens? Like, it's like Kolshak the Night Stalker X-Files or something. Right, Where yeah. it's just like, you have these investigators that are going around hunting ghosts, and that's your movie, and we have the real life for it. We have pre-established people. Whoever had that idea, it's, it's a spectacular idea, and I think... It's so far been executed very well. I've not seen any of the spin-off Annabelles or anything like that. I yeah, neither have Are I. They in those, I Do honestly we... couldn't tell you. I know it's Annabelle and Annabelle two and the Nun. Was there a second Annabelle? I think there are three Annabelles. Oh my good lord! Okay, there is the Nun, and I also think I don't know if it was advertised as one, but I think technically the Curse of La Llorona is also in the Conjuring. <laughs> really? <laughs> I think so. I think I read that in my research. It's so Let weird. Let me look it up. Patrick Wilson just pops his head in in the after credit scene. Is like, yep, that's a ghost for you, and that's that's the connective <laughs> tissue. I, I'm assuming you didn't see it. No, absolutely um, not. In La Llorona, I guess there is a priest that is like, I didn't used to believe in supernatural the stuff, but then a few years back. I saw something that um, that changed my mind, and then there's a flashback to him holding Annabelle. You're kidding me. Really? That is so lame. That's so lame. I guess La well, Llorona I mean, wasn't if, a good movie, is what I heard. So, If you want to get technical about it, it Annabelle is, is in Aquaman, so... What are you talking about, dude? In one of the underwater <laughs> scenes, because Aquaman is directed by James Wan, he snuck Annabelle. Oh my just god! Like sitting on the ocean floor. Jason Momoa x Patrick Wilson. Let's do it. <laughs> Crossover. <laughs> Ridiculous. Patrick Wilson, who is in Aquaman. Oh my god! Yes, he is. See, I, that's the only that's the only DC modern DC movie I haven't seen. So I, this is all being lost on me, and this is horrible. Okay. Tangent aside about La Llorona, <laughs> these are a great idea for a movie series, but I do have some, like, ethical questions about, like, while I think they make great movie protagonists, or, I don't I don't know how I feel about the Warrens, and I haven't really done enough research to know how I feel about the Warrens, because a lot of it seems very exploitative to me, but on the other hand, like, if you really believe that you are, like, exercising <laughs> demons that's the thing do it was lorraine warren actually psychic who knows nobody could ever know but like you said it's fun for main characters i i i give it the greatest showman treatment where i'm just like mm, i like it enough where i can look past the horrific history that this thing is based on now i don't know if i i can't 
there's definitely, this is in a gray area for me where it's like, The Greatest Showman, I cannot condone that. (laughs) I like it too much, though. I like it too much to not like it. It's like, it's like Chick-fil-A chicken. It's like, I could put up with, like, corporate uh, dastardliness to to an extent. Okay. When my money is going directly to, like, conversion therapy camps, I'm like, okay. Yeah, maybe (laughs) Maybe not. not, then. And definitely Conjuring exists in a place where I'm like, I can still appreciate this as a film series, as a character drama, because it is a, I mean, ultimately they are works of fiction, and I don't think that those movies are expecting anybody, despite they're based on a true story openings, are expecting anybody to take them as fact. I do applaud these movies for making it feel lived in and historical, and I think giving it that, like, practical edge is part of the reason that these movies are so good. Especially in the first movie, the whole, like, setting the cameras and the strings up. Oh, yeah. And the microphone and the segments that are, like, on 16mm, or, like, quote, on 16mm. Right, yeah. I think that's really a cool setup and they wouldn't be able to accomplish that nearly as successfully if they weren't quote based on a true story so we've had our discussion about the warrens and the ethics <laughs> of the warrens and everything so we don't have, we don't have to do that anymore i mean the warrens are dead now right i know they were alive for the filming of the first one but i think they're not of this earth any I, longer i think they're both dead yeah i i think ed warren was dead even before the first one. Oh, really yeah. I could have sworn I looked up something where they visited the set. Maybe that was just Lorraine. Well, there was also a story that I read about the um, people who were actually, like, the people who owned the house came and visited the set. Oh, like the family that the family was based on? Yeah. Oh my goodness. And also the fact that their house was, like, so well recreated that they were like, ah! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, we, got, we gotta get out of here. But yeah, I mean, they are definitely scary. Like, and, and they're scary in such a good old-fashioned scary way. They are not over-reliant. There are some jump scares, definitely, in these movies, but they're not over-reliant on them. It is all about good old-fashioned tension-building and character stakes. And, you know, I'm a big fan of these movies for somebody who has the reputation of being the scaredy cat of this <laughs> podcast. Well, I'm glad you like them, man. I, I really like them, too, just... Especially because I can't help but compare them to the Insidious films for various reasons, including oh, Patrick you mean Wilson, James Wan, movie James Wan Wilson being same haunted. same era. I think they were coming out at like the same time. That guy does work, man. He does work, and granted, the first Insidious is very good, but I think the these Conjuring's are my go-to for like that era of really good horror. Okay, Seamus, what do you think for these movies? Like, 14 and up? I know you saw it when you were younger than that, probably, but... Oh, man. I'm thinking about when I was, like, 10 years old, and I saw the original 1973 Amityville Horror with my dad and brother, and how that was always, like, my standard for horror for a while, because I was so young. I think you could even do this when you were, like, 12, maybe, if you're brave enough. There's nothing too bad. I think, okay. The secret with a lot of movies is I think kids should be scared. I think kids should watch things that they shouldn't be watching. <laughs> That's the only way they're going to learn, Garrett. Um, But, I mean, like, if you're a parent, I think, you know, mid, mid-teens, mid they're ready for it. I know, Like, 
this could be a pretty good first scary R-rated movie. I think. Honestly, that's that's pretty good because, like we were saying, it the this first Conjuring it hits so many of those classic horror marks that you know are probably good to have hit with your first one. It's little cursing, little gore. But yeah, what do you say we jump right into the spoilers? Let's jump around because there really is. I have very specific favorite moments in in both of these movies. Well, I I want to talk about Conjuring one first just because it's you know. Yeah, of the course. The first one. I mean, not that we don't, not that we won't jump around, but. But please, please go ahead. I'd never seen this one. I'd seen Conjuring two in the theater, but I did not oh. see this one, and partially because I was fifteen, probably when the first Conjuring came out, and so I could not have gone to see it on my lonesome. Of course. And also, I just didn't have, like definitely horror is something I got into later in my teens. Like I was not a horror guy in general but i my mom and i watched this you know earlier in the week and i really enjoyed it it's definitely i think the better of the two it's definitely the scarier of the two even though i was pretty freaked out the first time i saw conjuring 2 yeah man i you know there's there's a couple elements of the second one that are just genuinely very unique to me in the horror that i've seen that that makes me regard it very highly but rewatching this first one i might have to agree with you it just it's so it's really everything you need in a really good horror movie and i got the pants scared off of me man like i got ju- i got jump scared pretty hard cuz i was i was lucky enough to forget where a lot of these jump scares were going to happen and i don't know it's it's real solid man i i also didn't remember how little annabelle mattered at all for these movies considering it got a trilogy of spin-offs I want to talk about, I want to come back to Annabelle in one second, but the staging of the first one is really what gets me, is that the second one I think is very effective and very good in its in its horror, but the layout of the house and the way that is used and the way it is shot in the first film is just so well executed and the way they set you up at the beginning. So, I mean, hide and clap. Oh, right? Jesus Christ, the, what a... Uh, the iconic hide-and-clap sequence, definitely the most famous thing from this movie, partially because it was in the trailers. But the imagery of the out-of-focus wardrobe Ugh. opening, and then the hands coming out of the clothes, clapping, and then going back in like Homer Simpson going into his head. <laughs> chilling chilling stuff dude that is such a freaky effective way to use two claps as something to just make me so scared and then the of course the whole sequence later in the film where you have the mom going down to basement trying to figure out what's going on uh screaming at the ghost and with the like they set up the matches so well again it's all the matches it's basic screenwriting stuff of just like set up, pay off, set up, pay off. But this movie does it so well. And so setting up the basement, paying it off, setting up the matches, paying them off, setting up the hide and clap, thinking you paid it off with the fact that the little ghost girl was playing hide and clap earlier, but then giving it the self-awareness to 
clap out the match. Oh, perfect. The thing that's so horrific about that is not only that it's like kind of like a jump scare, which it's, I think it's more than a jump scare. I think it like, it's more deserving of, you know, I don't think it needs to be written off as a jump scare. Yeah. That was like a well-deserved, well-timed scare in a horror movie, truly. And it also has the horror of not only is this ghost aware enough to like track your patterns and exploit them, But it's also, like, mocking you and having fun doing it. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, that whole sequence, too, where it's, like, cutting to her with the matches and back down the stairs. And it's kind of, like, matching that cut back and forth while she's looking for whoever's down there. Right, like, tension-building perfection, truly. I knew knew it was going to come, too, but it just didn't even help me. It It was very well done. Oh, yeah, like, as, I mean, I'd seen that from the trailers almost 10 years ago now and remembered it because it's such a powerful vignette you know that's oh, yeah. all you need to sell that movie i also after that happened they cut to the daughters playing something i think and she is locked in that dark basement stairwell for like 15 minutes before the dad comes home oh <laughs> like, at least I, yeah the whole time i was like no like she's still there that ghost is clapping in her face in the darkness and she can't do anything to stop it well that's the thing is can the ghost be more than one place at once is a question I have a lot of the times in these movies is like, after the ghost is done with the mom and claps out the matches and then goes up to terrorize the girls, can she still be haunting the mom in the basement or is she now up with the girls and that's where she is? That is a great question that I think we might be looking too hard into. Oh, 100%. (laughs) She's probably just freaking out in the dark for a while. Ghost doesn't have to be there, but then again, the the entity is like a black fog shadow. Yeah, but also sometimes it's specific ghosts of specific people. And sometimes they're bad, yeah. sometimes they're not. The, the Conjuring um is both plagued and helped by the vagueness of its villain. In a way that the, Con- the Conjuring 2's clarity is help- both helpful for the audience, but also makes it slightly less scary, I think. And makes it a slightly less satisfying third act. Yeah, I can see what you mean by that. Like, the first movie has, like, the demon, I guess. Or no, it's the yes. witch, the ghost of the well, witch, witch who it's cursed not even the a land. Demon. That's, yeah. the, that's the thing. Having seen the first one first, I was expecting, oh, so the witch either conjured a demon or was herself possessed by a demon or something. But no. It's just it's a witch? just the witch. And... That makes a lot of the things that she... Like, there's a lot of stuff that demons can do that you're just like, oh yeah, a demon did it. Okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, but I could chalk up demon go- powers to witch ghost. I guess, but it's just a little bit vaguer for me, if that makes any sense. It just oh, feels yeah. a little bit weirder. I mean, granted, they do huh. rush past it pretty quickly. Lorraine is like, I have all these files. It's a witch who cursed anybody who took her land. And hung herself on the tree. And then she kind of brushes past to the other ghosts that we then see later. But we're, also, it's just... Warrens. Warrens, just so you know, it's hanged. When you hang a person, it's hanged. Oh, did they it's say hung? hung? They say hung the entire movie. And I'm like, it's hanged. I... The Warrens should know that. They're supernatural folk. <laughs> yeah, they do lectures at universities. Damn it. Ghost intellectuals. granted i would 100 percent go to a lecture where it's just footage of an exorcism like that's pretty hardcore (laughs) (laughs) that's wild the these movies are both structured as mysteries i like that 
this because any genre any genre is kind of improved by like laying the mystery plot element over it like you think about the harry potter books or movies for that matter and the harry potter movies are like fantasy adventure but the structure of their plot is a mystery like it's always what's going on at hogwarts what is you know we got to solve the case that is very true so when you look at the conjuring films right the first one's mystery is more structured like a scooby-doo where velma shows up and just she has all the information and then you just know what's happening. And that's something that falls down a little bit for me, even though I think the third act of the film is still very good. Oh, yeah. And better than the se- the third act of the second film. But the second film actually has clues and stuff that you and the characters are keeping track of. And you're seeing, like, how all these pieces fit together. And it's, like, it's got that classic kiss-kiss-bang-bang <laughs> yeah. thing where you've got two cases, but they're really the same case. Because you've got Bill in England and the and the and that going on, and you've got the nun, right? It's all coming together by the end of it. That's, that's yeah. That is really a great structure to do that, too. Because they, they, in that second one, they lay down the name stuff, like, super early. When she ruins her Bible that she then brings with her still. So, I mean, I think that's pretty well executed. I think, I'm hoping that the third one really leads into the mystery element. Because it sounds like it's going to be something along the lines of, I think the devil made me do it. I don't know a lot. Again, I haven't seen a full trailer for it. I think the title alludes to, like, a crime has been committed and the person is claiming that they were possessed. And so... If we get the Warrens investigating what happened, I think that could be so interesting. Like, really lead into that mystery genre. Oh, that is actually an awesome idea. Like, having Lorraine try to psychic some of the clues out. Maybe they lean in hard. Because for the first two movies, they were they really made sure the audience knew. Like, the Vatican is very strict about demon stuff and the devil and exorcisms and what we can legally do to help you if it is maybe a legal stance of it it would be kind of cool to see those them working against the restrictions of the church while trying to like solve a crime maybe before time runs out on the case or before the person is sentenced there could be a lot there i do like that while these movies are very clearly like the Vatican is right. There are demons and <laughs> they need to be exercised and everything. They also make the church like a pain. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, well, the church isn't really sure about this one. <laughs> yeah, they have to really convince their other priest friend. Though I did think it was funny that by the end of the first one, Ed was like, yeah, I, I could do an exorcism alone. Like, I've se- I've been there for a few. I can do them. And he does. And then... I do like that the third act, their stakes feel much higher than they do in the third act of the second film. Because you have the whole, the entire sequence where their daughter is home home with the grandmother, but home alone, and the demon, which, whatever, with the locket. You know, when, the, yeah. when they're oh, reaching yeah. through the locket for her daughter, and the Annabelle doll is missing. That, and... a, another great setup and payoff, by the way, those lockets, to be like a conduit doorway to the daughter very nice yeah and also i mean annabelle too is just 
that's a setup and payoff yeah. in its own right. The brilliance of that scene and the way it elevates the stakes for the Warrens to the point that you're like, okay, yeah, he is going to break the rule of the church into an exorcism because dude is desperate. This is his family now, you know? Yeah, true. I, I think that's executed so well. But I do like the way that they focus on N. Lorraine's marriage more in the second one on their relationship because the second one is the rare horror film that ends on, like, a happy note almost and has genuine moments of humanity in it. Yeah, definitely. Because there's a whole, you know, sequence uh, going into the third act of number two where he's he they bring the records, and then when the records don't work, he sings the Elvis song, and Patrick Wilson does a weirdly good Elvis impression. <laughs> yeah, with the swoopy hair and everything, too. It definitely works. And he, But not only is he... Like, that's a great example of the Warrens helping these people, bringing humanity back into their lives, but it's also a glimpse into Ed and Lorraine's relationship and the way that they function and how they love each other. And I th- that's wonderful. And even taking the step of having Lorraine have the conversation with the with the British guy, Gross. Oh, yeah, Maurice Gross. Where he's like, my daughter, she died, turning this one-dimensional character into, you know, a little bit more than what most movies would have him be, giving him that depth. I was just going to say, yeah, I definitely didn't remember Maurice Gross getting that, like, he's, like, packing his pipe, talking about, like, how he needs to know about the afterlife for his daughter and his heartbreak and there's there's a couple of those uh between ed and lorraine where i think they both talk to the little girl who's got the bill ghost possessing her in like a very sweet and tender way referencing their own relationship with each other and you know like you said it definitely it makes you feel a little bit more for this fictional version of the warrens that you want to be like that in real life and then goes and ends the movie with them dancing and smiling like most other horror films would end on that shot of the chair. Yeah, oh god, yeah. Just like the end of the first film is the mirror, the spinning mirror, where you're just waiting for the jump scare. You're Gripping your... Yeah. And it doesn't come, of course. Uh, I hope they do that in the third one, too. Do a little tension, just tension right at the end, just for a little... Ah. The Conjuring 2, on the other hand, says, no, this is a story about Anne Lorraine and their marriage and, and the humanity behind the ghost hunting and so we're gonna end on a note that is satisfying that urge it's not just a cheap tension build wait for the jump scare that doesn't come they do that they also get to do that (laughs) but yeah best of both worlds there definitely building for their relationship and as individual characters didn't quite feel the tension with the impaling vision that were kind of teased with throughout the movie like that was even, like, in the moment where he's dangling out the window over the perfectly sharpened tree trunk that was struck by lightning, I was like, okay, it sure. so bad. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. why does it look so bad? I don't know. Why did it look so bad? It's very weird. For, like, the... Everything else in that movie looks so good. <laughs> and that's, like, the ultimate climax moment of, like, oh, are they gonna die? Of co- I mean, of course not, but that's what they want us to think. And Ugh. that's where, um these movies are hurt by the based on a true story thing is in the the second they try to make me think that ed is actually in, in danger it's like he's not gonna die and i'm out of it now yeah definitely and that's why the third act of the second one doesn't hold up as well even though you know there's still definitely good moments 
the crosses all turning upside down. Oh, classic. Uh, the, I mean, the girl almost falling out the window is definitely more of a <gasps> moment <laughs> yeah. than him. Well, that's why in my mind they're like they do a lot of very good work with the the Warren character and story, but I just where the second movie shines for me, and which is why I probably regarded it higher than the first one when I had initially seen the second movie, is how they like I don't even know how to say it eloquently. Like they take moments that should, for all intents and purposes, be completely safe and scare free, and they just hit you with it when there's like rational people rational characters around you know yeah the, the little girls they run and grab their mom oh of course the ghost isn't gonna do anything when the mom is around and then they hit you with the dresser or the cops are here it's obviously gonna be some rational explanation all of a sudden no chance chair across the floor the cops scared to death loved that it just made everything feel so helpless outside of the warrens and their like power of love and jesus and all that <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right that, that the brilliance of these films is partially the fact that these ghosts and demons aren't scared of people. They will do whatever they want in front of whoever they want. Yeah, God. Turning the neighbor's dog into the crooked man in front of everyone is horrible. And the crooked man, there. here's an interesting, here, hold, I'm, pu- I'm pulling it up real quick. I want to get the guy's name because Ooh, yeah. it's such a weird thing. Um. A ton. I don't know if you know this. The Crooked Man is actually largely practical because he's got that really cool stop motion effect where, you know, it's supposed to mimic the way that the zoetrope that the little boy has looks. And you would think that they just did that in post, and I'm sure a lot of it they did. But apparently, he's played by an actor named Javier Baudet, who also is in a ton of other horror films. And one of the things that he is known for is he can move like he's animated, like at a jittery Whoa. frames per second. That is so cool. That's like one, I think the one of the freakiest and best designed monsters of that second one is the crooked man. In my opinion, it's like, especially for the way he moves down the hallway in that sequence. So that is blowing my mind that that's practical. Oh my God. That's another thing I don't like about it is the fact that the crooked man just kind of goes away. Like he locks him in a room or something and then it's just, Oh yeah. Yeah. They just kind of get rid of him. Don't they? But I want to talk about the sequence that I so clearly remember from the second one, other than the the nun painting sequence, which we should also talk about. Oh, one of the best, yeah. Um, Is the shot that is just like three minutes unbroken of Patrick Wilson, two camera, uh, shallow focus, where everything behind him is out of focus, including the little girl, where you see the little girl talking to him, transforming into the ghost of Bill oh, Wilkins. that is a fantastic scene. Yeah, definitely really effective in the way that they do that. Again, kind of going back to that in front of professionals and doctors and professors and uh, in the presence of all of this, like, actual authority, this ghost is not afraid to to fully come out, pretty much, and, like, address these people. Oh, it's great. But I just think that that is such an amazing scene because it feels like a low-budget solution that is so much more effective than any amount of 
high budget CG anything. Definitely. Like you said, just the the focus of the camera just just enough where you can't really see what's happening. Is that a shadow? Is that something appearing? Is it a different thing? What's going on? It's it's just really really well done. Which is made even more effective by the fake out at the beginning where they have all the posters on the wall yes. in the girls room and you think it's the man hiding in the corner and it's lit like a traditional horror film and then they turn the lights on and it's just a Starsky and Hutch poster oh, or whatever. Oh god. So well done. And like you were saying before, the same kind of technique as the scene with the nun painting in Ed's office where everything is lit in a way where you can't tell if the painting is a painting, if there's somebody standing in front of it, if it's not a painting at all, and then obviously hitting us with that, it's behind the painting in the wall because it doesn't play by our rules thing is incredible. And I think that's where I think this is a the best jumping off point for like the first time I saw this movie, the nun freaked me out so much I did not <laughs> sleep for like a week. What? Really? Oh dude. I I get that though. Just like the cracking teeth that that thing has and the that scene alone where it takes the painting and is like sprinting full force at Lorraine is is terrifying. I think that sequence like really stuck in my brain. The the sequence in the Warren house with the nun at the in the hallway and in the painting and everything else. And then watching it this time, definitely diminishing returns. Like, yeah. I was not really scared during this movie watching it the second time. Once they get in the office, I was like, I was definitely chilled. But in some of the scenes where the nun is a little more out in the open like that, more of my mind went to like, I, I guess even in that moment specifically, like, oh, does the daughter have psychic powers now? She can see the nun. And I kind of got distracted by that and... But also, then it just turns out to be like a vision sequence anyway. Yeah. Where the, the the daughter doesn't remember any of it. But that would be an interesting way to take it. I'm sure she's still alive, the war yeah. daughter. Oh, yeah, for sure. Make it, you know, ghost hunting's a family business, Seamus. They could do that. The Conjuring 4. My parents made me do it. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. That's an SNL sketch at best. But yeah, I think the first one is the scarier of the two because once you get over the nun, there's not much in the second movie because the Crooked Man is in there so little. True. And the way that they use the actual character of Bill besides like the voice changing and like the little girl being the physical manifestation or vessel or whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's that great My House jump scare, and then we really don't get much from that ever again, I don't think. It kind of switches to the monsters. Yeah, which, honestly, one of the most effective things in that movie is the chair. Just, oh, yeah. Because it's always there, and the scene where Billy's going down to get his water, and you see oh. him in the chair when he passes by. Uh, James, James Wan loves to sneak that lovely little background goodies in there in those kinds of scenes of just like mundane oh doing the laundry ghost in the background getting some water ghost in the background but i mean the end where they're like oh and the mom died sitting in that chair yeah that was 
if anything seemed super exploitative of that movie, it seemed like that mother's death maybe was. Could be true. I don't know. But why the hell would they keep that chair in that uh, in that house? That's what, everybody should be getting rid of all their furniture all the time in these movies, and they just aren't. <laughs> but uh. in addition to that, like, yeah, that is the one because it's so re- like 2003. I'm like, oh, that's so recent. I'm yeah, like, like it. That one does feel really exploitative, especially because it just feels like this kind of cheap, not scare scare at the end of the movie. Yeah, like I can hear that last written out part of the freeze frame like and she died in the same chair like come on man don't do it that's not cool i'm excited i'm excited about the third one seamus i really am i like these movies i like that they are such a refreshing different change of pace not only from the like horror genre but also they're a refreshing change of pace from, like, these cinematic universe mega franchises because it makes as much money as, as most anything like that. No, I mean, not Marvel or something like that. Sure. But, you know. but it's such a different take on it, and it has such a more grounded, human, low, like, small-scale window for films that are really a, a mega blockbuster franchise. Just like you, Garrett, I'm I'm really excited to see this third one. I hope some of our predictions are right, considering we are know nothing. But I guess it's only a matter of days until we get to see what's what. Mostly, I just hope it is on par with the quality of these films. That's all I'm looking for. I don't have like super high expectations, and it's also nice. That's another thing about these big blockbuster things is I don't have to go into this movie like, oh, they better pay off the end of this trilogy well. It's like, no, it's just a ghost movie. <laughs> yeah. The, the the stakes of the movie may be high, but the stakes for us as viewers are as low as, I hope this is scary and fun, which the other two absolutely were. So I'm, I'm ready for it. Absolutely. Should we move on to our pop culture reference, Seamus? Let's do it. So, for today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about the history of the United Artists Corporation, which is a Hollywood studio, and it will become evident in a moment why we are discussing it. It was founded in 1919 by just a slew of great actors and directors and everything from the era, including Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks. Just, you know, legends. E.W. Griffith also, who is also in, in the annals of film history, we can debate his he, legacy he's there. another he, time. Important for some reasons, terrible for others. Important for some reasons, but also has had that importance overstated. Yeah, probably. But basically, the entire idea behind United Artists was that even back, you know, in the 19-teens, over a hundred years ago... The studio system was corrupt and largely interested only in making money and not interested in art for art's sake. And obviously, you know, Chaplin and Pickford especially were like artists, artists. And, you know, Chaplin, I'm trying to even think of anybody similar to him in the last 20 or 30 years that was just this maverick who did whatever he wanted he was like these are the movies that are important for me to make and so i'm going to make them because that's what i need to do and he was the biggest star of his era too so he had the power to do it 
so UA had like from its inception was all about the creation of art that mattered outside of the interest of studio commerce. And it was a, a way for artists to really pursue what they wanted to pursue. And we got some amazing films out of it, uh, including, you know, tons of Chaplin's later work and like High Noon, a movie that is all about critiquing where Hollywood was at that point in history. And I've definitely I've seen parts of High Noon and I know that it is is definitely scathing, especially for the era. So it makes complete sense that that was kind of born out of this United Artists uh, collaboration. And so it was a pretty important studio for a long time until the 80s. It was bought by MGM, who, of course, was one of those very studios that UA was trying to buck during its inception. And so it essentially became like a production arm of MGM, who was already, by the 80s, kind of a a little bit more of an underdog studio than it had been in the past. Like, it used to be this juggernaut of a studio. A kind of dwindling that continued until just this week when Amazon bought MGM and completed a hundred year journey from UA being this anti-corporate loving of art studio art for art's sake let's um, buck big business and cinema and now it is under the rule of Amazon <laughs> and yeah. I just think God, that is an insane twist of fate yeah, truly, however many people rolling in their graves right now, just looking at their legacy of union and, you know, complete artist autorism, just like wanting to, like you said, create art for art's sake, just fold it in and fold it in and fold it in and now part of the company that's known for making their workers pee in bottles and who I think I just learned have a secret patent for a wrist-shocking device if you work too slow. It's... Hey, buddy, if you have a problem with it, why don't you go to the cry closet like a big baby <laughs> oh, where we can record all of your personal thoughts. They don't record those those booths, do they? Shame it's Amazon. What do I know? <laughs> There's an Alexa on every square, in earshot of every square foot of any given warehouse. No, no spoilers, but I think it's time to move on to our next segment. Oh, okay. Well, why don't we head on over to Save the Rec Center? Now it's time to Save the Rec Center, where we give you our weekly recommendations. Garrett, what are you thinking about this week? Well, I have no idea if you're going to end up cutting it or not, but you and I just finished up the last pop culture reference segment, referencing the Billy Wilder 1960 classic, The Apartment, which I just cannot recommend highly enough. I'm a big Billy Wilder fan. I'm a big Jack Lemmon fan. I'm a big Shirley MacLaine fan. And all of that comes together to an absolutely fantastic, gut-wrenching, but also hilarious film in a way that only really Billy Wilder can pull off. <clears throat> and... You know, I've obviously been thinking a lot about MGM and UA. A lot of my favorite films are MGM and United Artists Productions. So, looking back at their back catalog and thinking about all of those great films that 
the both of those studios have made over the years. The Apartment is definitely one of my favorites, and one that I slept on for a really long time. I didn't see it until about a year and a half ago, and I cannot wait, definitely, for the remake with Chris Evans and Zendaya. So, oh, Christ, yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's a really big recommend on Billy Wilder's The Apartment, now owned by Amazon. Oh, God. Well, I'll go I hit mean, up my Amazon Prime video and I'll watch it with you, Garrett. But what do you got, Seamus? Tell me, tell me about your, your rec center. I discovered some very interesting music uh, on these last couple weeks of finals here. If you ever need to hear ambient, liminal, lyricless mall music... If you're ever in that mood, that's such a specific and weird thing that you might be looking for. Zadig the Jasp. Z-A-D-I-G the J-A-S-P. Gazoom type, bro. Yeah, it's it's a little bit gibberish sounding, but it's just like, if you need some... It's just like amb- ambiance of a mall that is shutting down and that's it's a weird pitch like i said before but it's so calming it's like legitimately one of my favorite things to listen to while i'm doing just like anything mundane if it makes everything feel all ethereal and dreamy and i highly recommend that you 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 check him out He's only got a couple of these weird mishmash albums out there. He actually just dropped another one four months ago after, like, years of being more inactive. But it's wholly satisfying and really relaxing. It's it's almost just like meditation music. So give that a shot if you, if you need some, some good old background ambiance. That sounds fascinating, and I will definitely check it out. It sounds a lot to me... Like, what you're describing the vibe as is, like, when you listen... There are a lot of videos that you can listen to on YouTube where it's, like, um, shopping mall or theme park ambiance. So it's not just, like, the... It's not just, like, the music that you hear at a theme park or a mall, but it's, like, with the echo effect oh, and, like, yeah. slight crowd noise. The appropriate echo and once in a while... Yeah, just hearing, like, a sneaker hit, uh a waxed floor or something like half a mile down a down a lobby it's it's exactly that pretty much and it's 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 very good yeah but i think with that that's going to wrap us up for today if you want to contact the show on social media that's pcr underscore pod on instagram and twitter and you can email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com with any questions or suggestions for the show. You can also find us on YouTube. Uh, like and subscribe over there. Leave us a rate. Leave us a review. Anything that you can do to help us, it would be absolutely fantastic. Other than that, I think we're out of here. Adios, amigos. Uh, my house. Uh, <laughs> what? what? Huh? <laughs> you didn't watch the main segment. Sorry. Um, My house. That was very, like, theatrical. My house. Sounded like you were inviting everybody to a party.